I am very glad to be back on the show. Yes, it's very good <laughs> to have you back. I mean, not that we d- weren't thrilled to have Alex and Max, incredible guest hosts, but, you know, uh, with the three normal hosts of the show, we can perform our, our combo attacks that we've <laughs> yeah. worked so hard to level up. That's right. We can finally <laughs> use our limit break. Yeah, and we have a lot to catch up on. I mean, not that, like we were falling behind it's just that everything Mm -hmm. happens so much oh we are always falling behind let's not undersell it the labor movement uh moves fast international news moves fast and we are three people with internet connections (laughs) (laughs) that's correct yeah i mean it's been a whirlwind couple of weeks you know spending the weekend in dc a couple of weeks ago and then i was in boston all weekend last weekend which probably contributed to me being sick all of this week but uh but yeah it's uh a lot of mixed emotions <laughs> the last 6 weeks like at the same time like a, on the one hand you know we're uh watching an ongoing holocaust uh which is horrible but on the other hand, it has been genuinely, like, truly inspiring to see, like, so many thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and reaching into the millions of people, like, not just worldwide, but, like, in the U.S., like, mm-hmm. not, you know, traditionally the the most progressive of countries, I'm putting in the most ironic statement, but, like, to see so many folks, like, just understand this, and, I mean, once you've seen the pictures how could you not but like that and and seeing the energy continue to be maintained has been very inspiring and i think we have you know started to make a real difference i think we've seen a shift you know in in the the way that the media has tried to corral this issue a lot faster than we would have seen it otherwise i think they didn't expect anywhere near the fight back that they've gotten you know Mm -hmm. from the working class in this country and so uh, I think if as long as we keep pushing, we're going to make a real difference in, in ending this before they want it to end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, just maybe this is just anecdotal, but, you know, my family, they don't like not agree with me. But, you know, I'm cl- going to be clearly the more radical position in, in my family. But this was not a controversial opinion necessarily in my family. Like it, like telling people what was going on and, and doing even just a basic explainer was not that complicated. I, I just think that the the right wing is just going to lose this, that it just is not possible for them to win. I mean, obviously, in, in the long run, when it comes to, to this issue, the indigenous indigenous sovereignty will win out. But but even just on the ideological like positioning of this issue, I, I think that this is a, a very winnable fight. Yeah. And I mean, just the ideological shift alone, because there's been this. This whole fucking edifice that, that has been constructed for decades around Israel, the whole, the, the world's most moral army and all this fucking bullshit <laughs> that, the, the only, I, you know, you look, you laugh, but people uh, buy into that stuff. I know. Well, people also think they're going to grow up to be a Marvel character. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. But it's like those, uh, as silly and frustrating as those ideological constructs are, I think they have had a lot of power, at least mm-hmm. in the United States. It's true. For decades. And the speed at which those have been completely demolished and thrown to the side has been shocking. And I mean, they should be. Like, I mean, in in the face of these horrors, it absolutely should be. But I think it's one of those things where it's easy a lot of times for people to get pessimistic and think nothing's going to change. People are just going to buy what's on the media. And I don't know how you can look at the way that this country's responded in the last few weeks and still believe that. Because, like, 
I don't think people are buying any of this bullshit from the well, media anymore. It, it's also serving as a as a big like see a moment of like a, a tectonic shift in public opinion about like the history of the United mm-hmm. States and mm-hmm. settler colonialism and all of these forces that are at play. Oh yeah, you know you remember when Ukraine happened, trying to remind people like, hey, this didn't start this year. This right, you know, this uh, has roots back in 2014. It goes back a lot further than that. The U.S. has been manipulating this region for a long time, provoking tensions with Russia for a long time. But like with Israel, it's even more shocking because it's like way before any of our lifetimes. Right. The origins of this were planted and it reveals, you know, decades and decades and nearly a century of this particular project. And it has the features of so many colonial projects that came before it. I mean, I, I feel like it casts a very, very long shadow across the historical record of the United States and, and its, its client states, even to the minds of like a naive liberal. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, definitely. I mean, like, I think that especially with the centering of the decolonial, like, rhetoric that has to be focused on in this particular case of, of Palest- Palestinian liberation, it is, you know, you see these almost like right wing, uh, these, you have to, I'm not going to qualify it, these right wing apologists who are like, oh, if that's the case, then maybe the United States isn't legitimate. And it's just like, absolutely, it's not. <laughs> it's like, it. hey, thanks for, thanks for arriving. You finally got it. <laughs> Welcome to the resistance, sarcastic dipshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's so funny because they always do that shit. And yeah, they're, they they get such a gotcha, and it's just like, uh, no, you 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 are accidentally correct, but it's also because they tie it into the, because they they you know the people that do that are the same ones who buy into the whole like the the Elon Musk, uh, you know the South African decolonization is is white genocide mm-hmm. uh, bullshit that all the fascists are pushing so hard right now, and, and at Elon the same time it's pushing. like, well it's like. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the them, the ADL, you know, everybody. But it's like I don't see, like I don't see that getting any purchase with people who weren't already fascist freaks. So like, I, I don't think that's a very effective messaging. It's already not getting purchased with Candace Owens. <laughs> which is like what is happening but (laughs) before we go too far down that rabbit hole Your favorite labor podcast. Uh, my name is John. I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported show, so thank you so much if you support us on Patreon. It's the only way we receive support for this show, and it means a lot to us. If you want to hang out with us in the Discord, it's a really great place to hang out with not just us, but other listeners of the show and get more information about stuff going on around the world and near you. If you are a patron who needs stickers, just message me on Patreon. I'm a little behind on that, but I will pick up on it this weekend and get you your stickers. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think it will help yeah i do gotta say it's so much easier to do that intro with dan here because listeners might not have noticed but i struggled to know that it was my time to say my name because i always waited for dan and (laughs) it was so much easier this time and also uh we had originally planned a clip at the beginning of this episode but it is now going to be at the end of the episode
Yeah, it's a stick around, though. It's a funny clip. (laughs) (laughs) You stand your butt up. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so, uh, you know, I figure with the the topic of discussion being unescapable, we might as well start with our, our weekly roundup discussing the way that, you know, the world of labor has continued to rise up in response to the call from Palestinian workers to fight back against the global, you know, arms complex that is uh, working at the behest of the United States to help assist Israel in its murderous assault on Gaza. And so, you know, and not just in Gaza, really, you know, as, as you pointed out in the notes here, Lena, like this has, is, 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 the whole thing, it's it's all in all of occupied Palestine. There's been a huge amount of attacks recently in the West Bank. Like, you know, there's been invasions in Jenin, cutting off the electricity, attacking the hospital. That's apparently hospitals are just the favorite target for Zionists now. Mm-hmm. That's just their favorite thing, I guess, for oh, some and they're reason. Al- they're also just <laughs> taking the opportunity to to bomb the borders of Lebanon and Syria as well, because why not throw that Well, I mean, they're bombing the borders of Lebanon because they keep getting owned by Hezbollah, but, like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's fascism lashing out, uh, you know, but it's ridiculous. And, and it's becoming, you know, as you noted, like, more and more obvious, I think, to more and more people that it's like, oh, it's not just this current round of horrors that mm-hmm. is so bad. It's like, oh, this whole project is actually extremely fucked and has been for the last 75 years. And maybe we should change some of that so that it, uh, uh, you know, stops being a horrific settler colonial project. But, um, you know, getting to, you know, the workers who have been standing up on this, there was a a recent article, uh, Jeff Shirky, by the way, uh, has been really great on this. He's been one of the best labor journalists at like tracking like where, uh, where different unions are on this, who's called for a ceasefire, who's been particularly vocal. But yeah, so he's been tracking, you know, all the different unions who have, have joined the call for a ceasefire. There've been, and so there's been several teachers unions recently, like the Oregon Teachers Association, the, the Chicago Teachers Union, of course, uh, like there have been the union of DSA workers, which I didn't know was a union. Um, <laughs> but that's cool. Uh, IBEW local 520, the Massachusetts teachers association, the IWW mid Valley branch labor express radio, uh, the New Jersey state industrial union council pride at work, Eastern Massachusetts, the Pacific Northwest staff union, 3000 restaurant workers, United San Antonio, AFT and support personnel, uh, NEA AFT local 67, Unemployed Workers United and UAW Region 6 and 9A have all recently joined, uh, you know, the the rest of people with morals in calling for a ceasefire. Yeah, and I mean, this was really uh, heartening to me because this collective, like, response, this letter that they signed on to calling for the ceasefire actually represents about a million union members. And so, I mean, and we've even seen more uh, calls in in other situations, including um, just like I think that there was someone in the discord today who announced that their union had, uh, you know, signed on to the call for a ceasefire. And so, you know, it's it's good to see that labor is finally starting to turn this issue around is it, people might remember when we first were talking about this uh, a couple weeks ago and how the history of labor is pretty uh uh skewed towards zionism and uh how that is really not 
holding up these days, and we're really happy to see that that sea change. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in addition to, to you know just joining the calls for a ceasefire, there have been more and more actions around the world with workers standing up and physically blockading efforts to continue arming uh, the Israeli occupation forces. And so on uh, November 10th, uh, hundreds of activists blocked the L3 Harris Technologies uh, weapons manufacturing plant in Toronto. One of the groups there, uh, Labor for Palestine, one of their members, Aidan McDonald, who was representing them, said, quote, we are here to answer a call from Palestinian trade unions to shut down the arms trade with Israel, to stop our own complicity with genocide. We are here to say no more. Enough is enough, end quote. And that wasn't the only action in, in Canada recently either. There was a similar action also held in Ottawa at Lockheed Martin's Canadian headquarters. And at that action, uh, a member of Labor Against the Arm tra- Arms Trade, Simon Black, said, quote, We want Canadians to be aware that companies that have bases in Canada are complicit in war crimes halfway around the world, end quote. Wow. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Understatement of the year, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there have also been, just to note, there have also been protests on the, you know, like, Stand Up for Palestine days of action that have been Mm -hmm. happening the last few weeks. All over the U.S., too, there have been, you know, direct actions at locations of Elbit Systems, which is Israel's largest domestic weapons producer. There was a big protest at a, I think it was a Boeing plant outside St. Louis this past week. I think it's the plant that makes those, like, JDAM bomb kits. Um yeah. I've seen several other similar actions. I know they're not in the notes. I just wanted to mention them. Oh, and I mean, like, there's people blocking bridges. Mm-hmm. There's tons oh, of marches so cool. all over. I mean, really, just uh, the actions are every day. Yeah, the the Bay Bridge blockade the other day, that was incredibly uh, cool, where they literally just parked their cars across the bridge to block it and threw the keys into the sea. Like, yeah. Extremely cool. Uh, huge shout-outs to the, to the people that did that. But also, we, we did want to highlight there was a really good article in People's Dispatch discussing the way that South African workers in particular have been standing up uh, against the Israeli apartheid regime. I mean, I've, there's, you know, a long history there, uh, you know, of collaboration between Israel and the South African government before the end of apartheid. And so there's a huge amount of solidarity between the South African working class liberation movement and the Palestinians And so, like, trade unions, activists, and civil society groups converged on the headquarters of the Paramount Group, which is Africa's largest privately owned arms company in Johannesburg. Uh, Paramount has connections to the aforementioned Elbit Systems, uh, which has also been been protested around the world, uh, in the UK for years, but also recently here in the US by groups like Palestine Action. Um, The action in South Africa called for an end to the sale and funding of arms to Israel ending the South African government's contracts with Paramount and for South Africa to cut off all ties with Israel, including closing its embassy and expelling the ambassador. And included in their statement, the workers said, quote, we cannot allow South Africans to trade in arms that fuel oppression and genocide. Overturning apartheid here means we must end apartheid in Palestine, end quote. And that comparison is really important because I I think that it's really from South Africa that that initial comparison of apartheid comes from Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. of the way that that situation is. And we've even heard people from South Africa say that in some ways it's not comparable and that the situation in Palestine is like 
in worse in many different conditions when it comes to Gaza. And not to do you know some sort of deep comparison, but that's just like when when you look back at history and what people have said, you know, that's that's a pretty common theme. Well, and also this through line of understanding the oppression in one country and their collaboration with another country's oppressive government is precisely what's so threatening to the United States about Mm -hmm. people coming around on this issue. Because if you keep following that through line, it leads right back to Washington, D.C. and to London before it. And that's extremely, you know, upsetting to the people in power right now, like Joe Biden and basically every politician in Washington who are all in absolute lockstep behind Israel and have been for decades. Yeah, they're all just out here like, wait, no, please don't read Imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. We're banging you. Do not read that book. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and so like one of the unions that's been participating in the actions on both the 10th, but also on other days, is the General Industries Workers Union of South Africa, or, or JIWUSA, uh, G-I-W-U-S-A. And People's Dispatch uh, interviewed their president, Mametelwe Sabai, on the topic. Uh, the, the interview is actually really great. There's a lot in it, but uh, Lena pulled out some really good, a really good quote here that I think is, is really emphasizes you know, the movement there, saying, quote, We want the government to implement the boycott, divest, and sanctions, BDS, campaign against the Israeli regime, all its organs, as well as every single corporation that is complicit in its colonial schemes of dispossession and oppression of the Palestinian people. We also demand expropriation of Israeli corporations in this country, as well as Zionist corporations of South African origin that are linked to this warfare, end quote. And also, hell yes. Yes. I want to see more statements like this. This rules. Demanding expropriation. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Utterly correct. Yeah. I'm like, I have found uh, members of the vanguard of the South African labor (laughs) movement because like, holy shit, like extreme. Yeah, it's like. No, because it's like, because it's you know, you talk about it like we need a ceasefire. Yes, absolutely, mm-hmm. and, and I applaud every union that joins the call for a ceasefire. We need to end the occupation. Absolutely, again, applaud every union that joins on that. But this is like going to the full root of it, where it's just like, look, what are the forces in South Africa that mm-hmm. are pushing the government to collaborate with the Israeli apartheid regime? And it's the military-industrial complex. And so it's like, well, what's the solution to that? Nationalize the fucking companies so they don't have that power anymore. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, and that's right. So, so true. And, I mean, two of the companies that were actually pointed out in this article, one of them being the Israeli Central Bottling Company, also known as Milko, but uh, they've been holding a distribution center illegally in the at the Adarat settlement in the occupied West Bank. And, I mean, also... As longtime listeners of the show will know, notice that uh, Clover Dairy is also on this list of of, of uh, companies that are t- that should be expropriated. Boo, I mean, Clover, boo. Yeah, I mean, we we should remember what they they had like locked people in and beat them inside of the the factory, right? Is that the that's the story that we covered? Back? Yeah, no, they they hired goons to physically assault uh, workers who had been. Uh, I don't remember if they were on strike or if they were just protesting uh, some of the like some changes at Clover. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they like the ownership of Clover, which I think is like it leads back to an Israeli company now. Yes. It's a like it's a domestic South African company that I believe was recently purchased uh, by uh, South Africa by an Israeli investment firm. But yeah, that company had like hired 
people to just come in and beat the shit out of protesting workers. Yeah, they literally rolled up in vans and poured yeah. out of the vans and beat the protesting and striking workers. Yeah. And yeah, and no no surprise that that is an Israeli company that is one of the longest and oldest dairies in South Africa, which uh, to me means that uh, the you know vestiges of apartheid in South Africa still have some work to be done to be dismantled. Yeah, oh, it's like when sure. you hear about a, a, a U.S. Uh, agricultural family and they're like, we have a proud heritage that goes back 250 <laughs> years. And it's like, what was the math on that again? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like when you look up German companies' history and there's that weird gap in there. Yeah, um, Googling, where did Fanta come from? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So, you know, as always, just huge shout outs, hail to all these workers, like massive salute to everybody who's been not just, you know, signing on to the ceasefire, which also fantastic, but actually coming out and standing up and, and taking direct action to disrupt the arms trade with Israel. Like, this is exactly what the Palestinian workers themselves have called on us to do. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, I think the the duty of, of everybody with a moral compass, to mm-hmm. be honest. Like, yeah. I don't think you have to be a communist to look at this stuff and be horrified. So, like, I, I just want huge shout outs to all of these workers. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as we're going to do a ton of shout outs to a bunch of other workers in this unrelated to to the Palestinian issue, uh, like we have a ton of contracts to go over. It's 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 a contract episode, folks. Yeah, so many. Uh, And our first one is with Kaiser Permanente. Because, you know, as at the beginning of October, which I mean, honestly, seems like so long ago, Mm -hmm. but it was like a, a month. A uh, month and a half ago. <laughs> months where decades happen. Yeah, yeah something. something like yeah. that. <laughs> and so, I mean, this was one of the biggest, or it was the biggest healthcare strike in U.S. history with 75,000 Kaiser Permanente workers walking out for three days. And, I mean, after threatening a longer strike, if the company refused to begin to bargain fairly, Kaiser did return to the table and the two sides quickly reached a tentative agreement this week. And this week, the coalition of Kaiser Permanente unions announced uh, to members that they had ratified the deal by a whopping 98%. And, I mean, as we previously discussed... In- That's so high. That's it unbelievable. Is. Like, I'm, we're used to, at this point, even though we love to see it, strike authorization votes. Sure being that high, but contract ratification votes being that high. Like, even when you get a historic deal, you still get people who will get jazzed up by the strike and be like, look, this is this deal's great. We love it. But what if we got more? Well, the ratification uh-huh. votes that are like 85% are unbelievably high. 98 <laughs> yeah. is like in outer space. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I actually I'm very surprised. And we we did discuss the new deal and how it included average wage increases of 5% per year and established a minimum hourly wage of $23 an hour except in California where the a new law passed to make it 25. The deal also ends up barring Kaiser from continuing to increase its use of non-union contract workers and Mm -hmm. require that the company increase funding for training and hiring new workers to address unsafe staffing levels. So, I mean, that's pretty good. I, I really hope that this really does light the fire under Kaiser's ass to actually fucking hire some people. Yeah, I mean, I had had a few concerns initially wondering if, like, the because 
you know, we're part, you know, the key demand that, that was really floated here and what we hear in basically every healthcare strike in this country is to address the intentional unsafe staffing mm-hmm. that all these companies do in order to increase their profits. And, you know, it, obviously it's very difficult to write into a contract and perhaps I don't know if it's even necessarily legal under U.S. labor law to like require the company to hire X number of people. But at the same time, forcing the company to raise wages by so much that the jobs become much, much more attractive, uh, even with you know the difficult hours and difficult conditions, that should hopefully you know serve as a major incentive for more and more folks to uh, become healthcare workers and help alleviate that crisis. Uh, but clearly, uh, the membership be- it, it believes that, that these gains will do that because otherwise mm-hmm. you wouldn't have seen 98%. So, uh, you know, I think that that, what that tells us is that, you know, this is a, a really good deal or you wouldn't have seen almost again. And it's not just 98% of like a 200 person bargaining unit. Mm-hmm. It's 98% of 85,000 workers. <laughs> So, like, clearly, you know, these these wins are 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 what the workers were looking for, and that rules. Yeah, and I mean the um that we have a quote here from Carolyn Lucas, the executive board of the coalition of Kaiser Permanente Workers Union, who said in a statement, "quote This new contract is not only a victory for Kaiser's patients and employees, but for all frontline healthcare workers and those who rely on them in our moments of need." End quote. And I, I mean, it's so important that because you know they talk about how oh, there's not enough nurses out there. Something like, there are plenty mm-hmm. of trained nurses. The many nurses have retired early due to the condition conditions that are going on and the only way because there there are plenty of and this is not saying that like older and i'm not saying like older nurses who've retired i'm talking about people who you know are still younger and have decided to stop working in the industry because of how exploitative and the difficult conditions those people may actually choose to come back and serve communities through their nursing with better conditions like that so i mean yeah I, I well think that I mean- that's really important I think another thing, you know, I think we could also be pushing for, and I'm sure that these unions are pushing for, and I think something that would help with that so-called bullshit nursing shortage is there there has to be a ban on the use of travel nurse agencies during mm-hmm. labor disputes. Like, uh-huh. the, uh, until that goes into effect, travel nurse agencies are just scab agencies. Like, that's, that, that is their primary function until there is a, a legal ban on their use as scabs and that, but that would make a huge difference because right now you have those companies, you know, offering these huge temporary salaries in order to crush these labor disputes. And all that does is it pulls more and more healthcare workers out of permanent positions and moves them all around the country and just makes this all worse. Yeah. Well, and that's why the, the provision in this contract that discontinues the use of, of, uh, temporary and mm-hmm. contract labor and everything is so important because setting that kind of precedent for what nearly a hundred thousand mm-hmm. fucking healthcare workers does exactly what Caroline Lucas was saying. It doesn't just create a, a victorious situation for Kaiser patients and employees, but it sets a standard that allows all healthcare workers to be able to point to it and say, like, look, this is not just something we need in our contracts, but maybe there should also be like. NLRB rulings on this that say like you know you can't uh, misclassify your workers you can't hire scab nurses you can't all of these things that are such a constant detriment to uh, concerted you know labor activity 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, congratulations to the Kaiser workers on a well-fought victory. But, you know, uh, speaking of setting the standard, uh, mm. let, let's, let's, let's talk perhaps for the final what? time for a minute. <laughs> yeah, as I say, uh, well, and for 45 minutes, what, purely about the UAW, because it's not just one thing that we're going to be talking about here. Yeah, we got a lot of UAW news, but let's start with the big three, because obviously one of our biggest labor stories of the year, but especially for the last couple of months, has been the historic stand-up strike by UAW workers at the big three automakers at Ford, GM, and Stellantis. And for the past couple of weeks, those workers have been debating whether or not to ratify the tentative agreements that were agreed to recently. And this week, we finally saw the results of those. They started to trickle in as the week came on. Weirdly, the votes actually came in in a reverse order <laughs> to the, uh, the that which they were agreed on as TAs. Uh, we got the news on GM first. Where, uh, which was, despite it being the last company to reach a tentative agreement, where workers approved the tentative agreement by actually a very narrow, much narrower than I expected, certainly, margin of 54 to 46%. So not nothing. It's not like the, uh, the, the squeaker with IATSE, which we'll talk about later in the episode mm-hmm. from a couple of years ago, but very, very close. And again, this is not a contract that like, because I think a lot of people think about, you know, close contract votes is like, oh, this contract must not win that much. This is not one of those cases. As we laid out in extreme detail, there's historic wage increases, an end to the abuse of temp workers, an end to wage tiers, bringing EV workers under the master contract for the first time, which is a big part of why you saw a 97% approval vote at Ultium Cells. Uh, And so these are all huge wins. And, and so we did also see the other two uh, companies also come in with their ratification votes as well, with Stellantis and Ford workers approving the deals by a nearly identical uh, 68 to 32, much higher, but again, still actually lower than I expected. Mm-hmm. And personally, uh, I think that really what that points to is less that workers are like, you know, discontent with the contract and think that they're terrible or think that they don't have major wins or anything. But honestly, I think this is, if anything, really a testament to the mobilization efforts of the rank and file of the union in electing mm-hmm. somebody like Sean Fain and building a platform that can win, that could actually go out there and flex the real muscle of the rank and file on the floor. And so it, then coming to see what their power could win, just being like, hey, maybe we could win even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah no, I, I definitely mean, I, it, think it was that, that, that really, um, that, that commitment to being like, gosh, you know, I just saw our power and I don't think we use the whole thing. Yeah, well, it's easy to get trot brain about it and be like, see, you know, 54 to 46%, that means the contract's not actually good. It should only ever pass by 98%. That's the gold standard. (laughs) And it's like, well, I don't know. You know, sometimes a a healthy, actual democracy, I know we don't see a lot of them in this country, uh, they produce pretty close results in decisions. It's okay. Yeah. And and so, you know, some of the the sticking points, you know, that, that workers had discussed... Uh, the uh, labor notes had a really good article on this about the debate, you know, within the the plant, which by the way was fost like was encouraged by the union leadership, mm-hmm. which is one of the most encouraging things I think that we've seen out of the change in the new leadership is is rather than trying to push the contract, being like, look, we think we got the best that we possibly can, but it's it's your deal. You the it's it's for the workers to decide. So by all means, debate all of these points individually. And so, and but a couple of things that people really seem to be who were opposed to the deals really seem to be settling on was that while this contract eliminates wage tiers, it doesn't eliminate 
all forms of tears because in 2007, you know, around the time as the auto companies were collapsing and then had to be bailed out, uh, really by the workers primarily, uh, that ended the period of all workers at the big three getting pensions and getting uh, retiree health care. And so while this contract eliminates all the tiers in wages at all the different plants, it doesn't win back those pensions. However, I have read a bunch of you know articles where people have talked about this, and the UAW leadership has indicated that they they did fight you know to win back pensions for all, to win back retiree health care for everybody in this strike, but that the big three and really ultimately the you know gigantic Wall Street banks that functionally control most industry in the United States uh, had really dug their heels in on that issue and were like willing to take extreme economic damage to prevent it from uh, being implemented. And they may have made an argument, which I think is pretty convincing, that in order to win a gigantic economic cost to the companies that bringing back pensions for everyone would be a well-deserved economic mm-hmm. cost, but a huge amount of money – that they would need the leverage that the UAW used to have when not only did they have the big, like they had the big three unionized and that was basically the bulk of auto manufacturing in the US. But now you have all these non-union companies like Tesla, Honda, Hyundai, Toyota mm-hmm. operating non-union plants and putting competitive pressure on the big three. And so their argument has been that over the next few years, as they use the historic wins from this contract to fight to unionize those companies, that will give them even more leverage in 2028 to then be able to demand, look, all right, you've had these, you know, few years uh, where you didn't have to pay pensions for everybody. Well, guess what? Now that's fucking over. We got rid of wage tiers in the last contract. We're getting rid of tiers entirely in this contract. And we're going to get pensions for everybody now in 2028, where we might not just see the UAW on strike. We could see Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of unions if they answer, you know, Sean Fain's call to align their contract expirations with May Day 2028. So that that is is what, as far as you know, I could read. Not being a UAW member, not being involved in any of these debates, like what a lot of the discussion was. So again, it's less about this contract is bad; it's not good enough. To this contract is great, but could we also win these other things? Mm-hmm. And well, so and it, it's it's such a sensible type of strategy that I I still understand being suspicious of it because like, you know, union leadership has promised things in the past and then not followed sure. up on it. But we have a concrete trajectory of mm-hmm. delivering on promises. And the part of this that makes me so optimistic in terms of, of, of believing in that strategy is that the entire time that it was essentially proposed, the, the valve on whether or not it was going to be followed through on was left open to be decided by the membership. And right. as evidenced by the, the vote, they easily could have turned it down. And there's no doubt in my mind that Fain and the rest of the leadership would have turned around and said, Okay, then you made that decision and we'll keep fighting for whatever provisions you think are the necessary step right now. So unlike a lot of times where I'm suspicious of things where they're saying like, oh, we need to wait and use our gains to leverage future gains, I I kind of am, am less suspicious of this just because it seems like it's been left in the hands of the workers the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to your point, and we'll get to this in a bit when we get to Mack trucks. I mean, that's exactly what happened in the, in the uh, case of the Mack truck mm-hmm. story, but let's finish this one up real quick before we get there. Oh yeah. So in addition, you know, now we've got the big three automakers of uh, the, these historic deals have all been ratified. And now what that's really uh, kind of allowed the union to really turn its attention to is, as I was mentioning, the fight to unionize 
the other auto wakers and make it not a big three, but a big four or a big five or a big six, potentially up to a big eight. And we have seen already tremendous fear from all of these non-union automakers about the UAW because there has been a rush at all of these companies to raise wages and be like, please don't unionize. <laughs> uh, we're, we're your friends. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, we previously mentioned how Toyota was one of the first companies to do this. Honda quickly joined them. And this week, Hyundai also announced major wage increases for its American workforce as well to try and stave off UAW organizing drives. Uh, Hyundai announced on Monday, November 13th, that they will supposedly raise wages by 25% between now and 2028, which is a suspiciously similar number hmm. to the base wage increase in the UAW master agreement. It, it also seems like a, a suspiciously, particularly diminished number by like a very carefully calculated amount. <laughs> is well, that right. carefully calculated amount COLA? <laughs> yes, exactly, because that's, that's the thing. It's like, look, I mean, that is a, a big wage increase for those Hyundai workers, but as you know, many, many members of the UAW have pointed out on social media, that's just scraping the surface of what's in the contract. It doesn't include COLA. It doesn't include any of the uh, agreements to make things for temps better. Even where these companies have agreed to cut their wage progression down, they haven't cut it to three years like it is at, at the big three now. Mm. Like, it is... E and most importantly... A company offered wage increase can be a company rescinded wage increase yeah. without a contract, mm -hmm. without the protection of a union. None of these is anything more than a like a carrot they're dangling on mm -hmm. the end in front of you to try and get you to not organize. The only way you can actually secure those is through organization. They're basically saying, uh, oh, you want better compensation? We have better compensation at home. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and on top of that, I mean there's no reason that isn't going to be accompanied by things like healthcare cost increases. Mhm. Mm mm -hmm. Exactly. 100%. So, really excited, you know, over the next couple of years to see the efforts that the UAW rolls out at these companies because it has been way too long that that there have been all these companies operating these non-union plants in the south and if this is the if we can break into organizing manufacturing in the south with the UAW, well, then that could see an explosion of organizing at other places across the South, like the campaigns that unions like the Union of Southern Service Workers have been working on so diligently as well. So I, I think I think there's a lot to be optimistic about here in the labor movement. So, But one last thing I did want to mention on the automotive side of things for the UAW before we get into another story about the UAW is, as you mentioned, Lena, the, the strike at Mack Trucks, because, you know, we've been, we've been covering them for the last month because... The bargaining team at Mack Trucks had reached a tentative agreement about a month ago to prevent a strike at Mack, but the workers voted it down by, I believe, like a 75-ish percent margin. I don't have it written here in the notes. But, and when that happened, there was no pushback from the union. They were just like, oh, okay, well, this wasn't good enough. All right, fuck them. Let's go strike. And so for the past month, workers at Mack have been out on strike, and this week that strike came to an end as workers ratified a new five-year contract by a 93% margin. <laughs> So that's a that's a pretty big flip from 73% against AATA to 93% in favor. <laughs> yeah, I so. mean it really shows that you know like we were saying earlier when the workers said this isn't good enough, the negotiating team went back to the table and said the workers said it's not good enough, but we got to mm -hmm. we got to really bump <laughs> up these numbers and that I mean clearly happened with the big shift in the way that people are approving it.
Yeah, absolutely. And and just to get into some of the details, for instance, the original TA offered a 19% raise over the five years, which is it, it works out to about 4% per year, which is higher than your average inflation, but not really enough to overcome recent and cur- like recent inflation and likely future inflation. Mm-hmm. Whereas the new deal that the the workers agreed to, a little bit higher than that. Instead of a 19% raise over five years, according to a statement uh, from the company, actually, the, the new deal will actually increase the wages of workers over those five years by 36%. And instead of getting a 19% raise over the life of the deal, most workers will get an immediate raise of 15% with lower paid workers receiving higher immediate raises. So like... Uh, in this case, you know, the workers were like, yeah, all right, that TA is okay, but it's not good enough. We can get more. Well, they were right, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they have. <laughs> and, the, and, and again, to, to point it out, like, it's so refreshing to see a union leadership see that and be like, and not be like, this is short-sighted, this isn't going to work, and try and, like, poo-poo it, but instead be like, all right, cool, fuck them, let's go, and then go <laughs> out there and negotiate this much better deal. Well, yeah, and as and- Lena was mentioning earlier, this could be great foreshadowing for what we might see May Day in four years mm-hmm. when the big three contract comes up and the UAW is like, okay, let's build on this. Yeah, and I mean, this is covering nearly 4,000 UAW workers across Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Florida. So, I mean, it's not a small amount of workers that this is going to make a difference in the lives of. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, congratulations to the workers at MAC and all the workers at the Big Three for these, you know, really huge wins in these big contracts. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, well, for our next story, we want to talk about some more UAW stuff because the UAW has just been on a tear for a little while. And it <laughs> seems like everybody's been trying to pack in the strikes before the holidays because this is the alternative agreements episode. <laughs> so on Friday, November 17th, the coalition of unions striking the major Detroit casinos announced that they had reached a tentative agreement for a new five-year contract after just over a month on strike. The group, which includes members of Unite Here, the Teamsters, and the UAW, will remain on strike while members decide whether or not to ratify the deal. In a statement, the UAW hailed the New Deal for its major wins, saying, quote, The historic five-year tentative agreement covering 3,700 employees includes the largest wage increases ever negotiated in the Detroit casino industry's 23-year history, including an immediate 18% pay raise on average. No health care cost increases for employees, workload reductions, and other job protections. First ever technology contract language, retirement increases, and more. End quote. And, you know, we see a lot of talk about technology contract language. That's been a big thing in the SAG-AFTRA and WGA uh, uh, negotiations and strikes. But it's it's interesting to think about it in a casino context, which is one yeah. that I had not previously considered. Uh, I, I have to imagine that casinos are trying to do something between SAG-AFTRA and McDonald's in terms of technology <laughs> stuff. And it's got to be absolutely horrifying from an employee per, uh, perspective. Well, and I mean, this is also, I mean, there there is some, uh, is there lodging at these casinos that's covered in this or mm-hmm. is it just, oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, there's hotels. when it comes to that, I mean, we saw it with uh, a couple different like hospitality workers strikes, the concerns over like problematic customers or even just the surveillance of the, the staff that are doing cleaning and stuff like that it has been uh, really a danger for the workers themselves, and they've had to implement that in their contracts. So when it comes to technology language, I mean, it really is pretty far-reaching and necessary in a lot of industries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Well, and I was just going to say, like, there's a lot of wins in this, but I also love seeing just anytime it's like this contract includes, and then I see the phrase workload reductions, which is like, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, Correct. that's what I want to see. Yes, <laughs> more pay, good, less hours for the same or more pay, really important. <laughs> Better, um, <absolutely>. honestly, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so, yeah, these Detroit workers went on strike back on October 17th in order to win the gains earned by years of sacrificing to keep the casinos open, even when they probably should have just been closed with all the workers mm-hmm. on state support, because that's what you do during a pandemic if you uh, have any sense or uh, emotion for other people. <laughs> And with inflation raising the cost of living over the last few years by about 20%, a major raise like this immediate 18% uh, increase in the contract was long overdue. Workers have also been fighting attempts by the casino operators to shift more of the burden of health care costs onto them, and this new deal freezes costs where they are today. The deal also improves retirement benefits for the first time in eight years. Uh, we heard from Alicia Weaver, a guest room attendant and member of Unite Here Local 24, who said, quote, a contract of this significance makes me feel proud to work in Detroit's casinos once again. Cleaning hotel rooms is a really tough job that gets tougher every year. So the fixes we made in this contract to reduce my daily workload mean less strain on my body and more energy for my family when I get home from work, end quote. And again, Utterly correct and so Mm -hmm. unbelievably important to talk about workload reduction, reduced hours, reduced responsibilities, and more specific job details and and job responsibilities. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, moving from one group of very exploited workers to our first uh, kind of our first news story Mm -hmm. of the week, uh, this is actually one that's been going on uh, for several weeks uh, on the other side of the world from us, but it's, it's, Unfortunately, uh, a specific area of labor what we've had to cover a couple of times on the show as one of the most exploitative on earth, and that's specifically the garment industry in Southeast Asia. And right now, but with a focus on Bangladesh, because you know we've talked about in the past how fast fashion, this like sort of mode of not just you know producing clothing styles for whatever the trend is but specifically like extremely rapidly like here's a new trend produce it now put it out there and then in a couple weeks nope new thing throw all those away new thing new thing new thing the whole this whole model is based on producing extremely cheap textiles replacing them very quickly and it's basically the whole business model of brands like Gap, Walmart, H&M, Zara uh, I mean, there's a whole ton of these uh, that rely heavily on ex- extremely exploited labor in Southeast Asia. And and Bangladesh is really one of the centers of this. And so the whole business model of these giant brands, which includes places like, like it includes Levi's, uh, Marks and Spencer, even Aldi, which I didn't realize Aldi sold clothes. Yeah, I think it's like a. I think it's like a, a Walgreens kind of situation that that one aisle that has the shirts mm. that change or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, but so the business model that like makes this whole fast fashion bullshit possible, it is it, it it's based on being able to pay the workers who produce these garments as little as two dollars and fifty cents a day in hundreds and maybe even thousands of sweatshops across the region. Meanwhile, the brands themselves routinely deny any responsibility for the horrendous conditions that garment workers labor under by hiding behind their relationship with contractors, blaming individual factory owners and saying that the brands that profit from this exploitation have nothing to do with it. Uh, This is extremely standard uh, PR deflection that we see from major brands all the time, but it's particularly disgusting in this case because the only reason these factories exist 
is to serve these giant brands. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't even... It's a deflection, but also the deflection doesn't make any fucking sense because it's like if it's the factory owner's fault, then just end your contract with them. Yeah, a hundred percent, and they never do. Mm-hmm. And and this is not a small portion of Bangladesh's economy either. Over eighty-five percent of Bangladesh's exports are textiles. Like this is really what the uh, you know U.S. imperialism has turned to Bangladesh to produce. Mm-hmm. And so the last several weeks. The garment workers have had enough, and 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 they have been protesting against these horrific conditions. Uh, and so, like Bangladesh Garment and Industrial Workers Federation President Kalpona Akhtar said in a statement, "quote The brands and retailers only care about smooth shipments and profit, but they don't care about the well-being of the workers at the bottom of the supply chain or the fact that many workers are half starving." End quote. And that's not an exaggeration, uh, and that's. Because the wages that many of these workers receive are literally not enough to feed their families on. And so over the past several weeks, that has finally just been too much for workers to bear. And tens of thousands of workers have risen up in Bangladesh against these horrific conditions, launching massive strikes that shut down over 600 factories a couple of weeks ago to demand wages that they, just wages that they can live on. Workers are demanding a raise to 23,000 taka per month, which is the the, uh, local currency in Bangladesh, which is the equivalent of just $209 per month. Or if you work that out to a year, like uh, less than $2,500 per year. But the factory owners have refused even that, offering only a mere $90 per month, less than half what the workers are asking for. Jail. I mean, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. During the protest, police have viciously attacked uh, the striking workers, firing tear gas into crowds and, and repeatedly beating and occasionally shooting strikers. Hundreds of factories were forced shut in the initial days of the strike, despite the police crackdown as police were simply overwhelmed by the tens of thousands of workers rising up. Four factories were burned down over the course of the first week of the protest, and since, at least four workers have been killed by police. Uh, and this, the strike was launched in parallel with massive nationwide demonstrations demanding that the current prime minister of Bangladesh resign over corruption, rigged elections, and the enormous cost of living crisis crippling Bangladeshi workers. Uh, over 18,000 protesters, including the leaders of oppor- opposition groups and the former home minister, have been either charged or arrested during the protests. That's um, so many. Even yeah. the former home minister is out here. What is, I mean, like that's, that's enormous. Yeah. And now the vicious crackdown from the police though, has so far failed to drop the public pressure. And so, oh, uh, seeing, well, all right, we tried the stick. Fuck it. We'll, we'll, we'll make some reform changes. We'll, we'll toss people some crumbs. And so on Tuesday, November 7th, the government announced, all right, we see you, we hear you. <laughs> Uh, and they announced that they will raise the minimum wage for garment workers by 50%, which sounds like a lot. But it, that 50% increase only brings the minimum wage to a monthly wage of $113. Again, barely half of what the workers are asking for. And the number the workers are asking for did not come out of the sky. That is the number that they need to be able to eat. <laughs> which, like... <laughs> Is, is literally, it's supposed to be the minimum subsistence. Like, that's mm-hmm. how capitalism is supposed to work. You're not supposed to go below that because then you can't maintain your uh, workforce. But 
that's how rapacious the you know U.S. imperial system is in creating these horrific conditions. And so the unions have completely rejected this bullshit half measure by the government, just being like, we're asking for $200 a month, n- not as an arbitrary number, be- because we can't eat with less than that. So offering us less than that does nothing. It's pointless. <laughs> and, and they have noted that you know inflation in the country remains extremely high at 10% for October alone, and that the Bangladeshi currency has lost 30% of its value in the last year. So- these these raises being offered by the government are nowhere near sufficient. So in some sense, they're not. It's wild to me because they're they're not just asking for like the most reasonable thing in the world, which is pay us enough so we don't die, so that we can eat food and we can actually be mm-hmm. alive human beings. But they're also basically saying like. It, pay us enough so that our economy doesn't collapse because the way that you're gutting it right now, it's in a death spiral. And this is the last little bit of that. This is the circling the drain bit where the currency Mm -hmm. gets devalued 30% in a fucking year. Yeah. And so, uh, we've got a quote here from garment worker, Sajal Mia, who told reporters from the Hindu quote, I reject this new monthly minimum wage. It is an injustice to us. The authorities don't take the situation of the market into the account. They're only concerned about their own interest, end quote. And other workers who also spoke with reporters at the Hindu agreed that the proposed wage increase is nowhere near enough to survive on. And so following this, uh, you know, change in the minimum wage law, several factories have reopened, but the main garment unions have vowed to continue the strike and continue fighting for a wage that workers can survive on. Um, And as protests have continued in the country, violence from both the state and factory owners directly has continued to escalate as well. Uh, Masuma Akhtar, a worker at Deco Knitwares, told reporters from The Guardian this week that when they arrived for a recent shift, they found the factory full of armed men who beat her and other workers with sticks so badly that she now cannot use one of her arms and therefore cannot work. Uh, many of her other coworkers were also injured and had showed the reporters like uh, welts and and all sorts of other wounds all over their bodies from this horrific assault. And after the violence, the men told the workers that if they participated in any more protests, they would face further violence. Which, if anybody has listened to our uh, our series on weavers of revolution mm-hmm. in in Chile about the situation that the garment workers there faced, I think there are a lot of striking parallels personally. Yeah. Um, but another worker who spoke with Columbia Garments, Naima Islam, and I believe all of these uh, these names are pseudonyms because they're to protect the the you know identity of the workers so they don't get further assaulted. Um, but so she's a machine operator at Columbia Garments who told The Guardian, quote, they are trying to silence us, but we won't back down. They can threaten and beat us, but what they don't understand is we have nothing to lose. If we accept this, their ridiculous wage proposal, we will starve to death anyway, end quote. Yeah, that's a fucking horrible thing to hear. Uh, mm-hmm. Just that this this is where the conditions stand in, like, and the government is willing to do, I guess, just repression. Mm-hmm. A, a tiny bit of reform and a ha- and a, a quarter measure, if any, uh, and still 
just uh, just you know what they get is more repression. It's it's well, absolutely ridiculous. And again, all of this to protect their interests, which are, is the money and the status that they get from Western corporations and mm-hmm. Western state support, particularly U.S. corporations in the state that enforce these kind of living conditions, so that we can sell clothes cheaply every three days with new product at fucking Walmart, which is something we don't even fucking need. Right. And and to be clear, like while we should absolutely be extremely outraged at the Bangladeshi government and of course the ruling class there for exacerbating this horrific violence, to your point, John, this is the sort of thing these American companies could end this shit right now. Instantly. If they literally they literally all come together and say, Look, we are horrified by the conditions that have been created by our, you know, industry here, and we don't want to be a part of it. So we aren't going to work with any factory that doesn't pay workers at least X dollars. And it better be fucking higher mm-hmm. than the demand that the workers are making, because the demand the workers are making is just so that they can fucking eat. No, yeah. Like, in a just world, you'd double it right away and be on your way to quadrupling in a, in a year or something. Right. And And the thing is, I'm under no illusion that the the brands are going to do that. But right. ju- I, I just like throw out that hypothetical to point out that, again, 85% of Bangladesh's exports are garments. They are almost all to these American brands. There's only a, like a dozen to 20 of these giant brands that basically control the entirety of this industry in Bangladesh, which gives them an absolutely enormous amount of power mm-hmm. and therefore an absolutely enormous amount of culpability in this violence. They could end it tomorrow by demanding that their suppliers pay their workers a living wage, and every day that they do not do that, they continue to be responsible for this situation. Oh. Oh, it's, That's right. It, it's absolutely correct. I think even to say it outright, like a a dozen American brands mostly are guilty of perpetuating a famine just because mm-hmm. they did it through economics or or through pay rates or whatever doesn't mean that that's not what they're doing they are straight up causing creating a famine including yeah. including the deaths the direct deaths the four deaths of the workers mm-hmm. that have been you know that have been at the hands of the police and the repressive state apparatus there because they are only there to enforce the will of these companies yeah so you know all our solidarity with the working class of bangladesh um i mean <laughs> You deserve so much more than this, uh, and 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 honestly, considering the horrific violence, the fact that the workers continue to stand up, that they continue to fight back against this, is incredibly inspiring. Mm-hmm. And also, I think just underlines to folks, it's like this is why we also have to put pressure on these companies here in the U.S. Just be like, look, I'm not supporting this shit anymore. Like, we're not going to buy from you as long as you continue to base your entire business model on putting these people in the worst form of sub-poverty, like, that exists. And so, like, just fuck these companies, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, while we're, we're, we're putting our pressure, you know, on the military-industrial complex in the U.S., that's another target that we as Americans can actually put a lot of pressure on here at home. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you hear a story about anything terrible that's happened in the world anywhere for like the last hundred years, and there's what, a 97% chance that an American company is an extremely significant player in the story? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and so I do think that we do need to keep going through our stories here, and so... We have to move over to follow up on the Sega workers who actually, like we had talked about before, we were very excited that there was uh, the QA workforce at Sega who had unionized. But as with any capitalist company, uh, they did not like that. Sega was not really like, 
about the union hedgehog. Uh, so the workers <laughs> yeah. have been, you know, since since workers across the video game industry have been fighting to unionize for years, and there have been some of these gains, we're not really surprised that the repression has come down from Sega um, after the workers there unionized with the CWA back in July. And this week, as reported by Kotaku, the CWA filed unfair labor practice charges against Sega when it was announced when it announced plans to, quote, phase out temporary workers who make up 40% of the 200-member union by the end of February. The company announced these plans without discussion with the union, intending to offshore the positions to Japan and Europe, basically just to avoid the union. So uh, just another example of a company unilaterally making decisions during status quo, mm-hmm. uh, They they really... Are are just like no, there are there's no repercussions. Like even as and we'll talk about Starbucks a little bit later, but I mean like they are probably one of the prime examples of consistently breaking the law and getting basically no repercussions. And so they are an example to companies like Sega who are just gonna be like, uh, no, we're just gonna fire uh, almost half of you, and uh, that's just too bad. Yeah, I mean it's. There's so many echoes here of so of several other companies, but the one that I think you know to me that first comes to mind is you know Grinder, where mm-hmm. the minute Grinder's workers announced a union drive, there's like, oh, uh, actually return to office policy. Uh, oops, we lost half our staff. That definitely mm-hmm. wasn't the purpose of initiating that policy. And yet again, we've seen basically no action from the NLRB on that. Yeah, definitely. I think that especially being a tech company, their ways of doing this is very like, oh, no, these sorts of layoffs happen all the time. This is just a natural part of business or whatever, you know, well, that sort of bullshit. Yeah, when when I initially saw the thing and I first saw, oh, SIG announced his plan to phase out temp workers, I'm like, well, I mean, the whole way we treat temps in the U.S. is very exploitative, and I'm not a huge fan of that business model, so maybe that's – and then the next sentence, so they can lay off 40% of their staff. I'm like, oh. Never mind. Fuck yeah, this. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like um, eliminating temp positions, uh, evil outcome compared to eliminating temp positions, <laughs> right. good outcome, which is making them full time, full pay workers. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so we had a quote from uh, Elise Williker, a senior QA tester at Sega, who told Kotaku, quote, It's disheartening to see such actions from Sega as it unmistakably demonstrates bad faith bargaining and a refusal to recognize the valuable contributions of a significant portion of our colleagues. We have filed an unfair labor practice charge to call out Sega's direct dealing with members and its breaching of the status quo by telling bargaining unit members that our jobs would be ending shortly. Sega will not be allowed to get away with this unlawful behavior. We call on the company to make all temporary employees permanent and return to the bargaining table in good faith. There is no other just alternative, end quote. Yeah, and that's so true. I mean, literally, it's like what John just said with, like, you know, eliminating temps to the good version, which is making them actual full-time employees, Mm -hmm. and then this bad version, which is just eliminating people's jobs. Yeah, it's a it's a real uh, gotta go fast versus evil Doctor Robotnik kind of situation. <laughs> to put yeah. it in terms, I think Sega might be able to understand better. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Absolutely. And I and so, so I mean, we hope that there are some repercussions for this, and that, and we want to extend our solidarity to the union there in their fight against Sega and these unlawful 
practices. But uh, yeah. we also got to follow up on more contracts. Like, you know, we said <laughs> that this is mostly about contracts in this episode, and it is true. In this story, we're going to be talking about the SAG-AFTRA contract that after 118 days on strike, a TA was reached. And on Friday morning, the National Board of SAG-AFTRA reviewed the proposed TA and voted over 86% in favor of recommending it to the membership, which then, you know, since they've recommended it to the membership, means that they had to provide a lot of details on the deal. And so we are going to check out what those details are here. Yeah, because, like, I know y'all talked about the end of the SAG after strike last week when when Max was on, uh, which, great episode, by the way. Max rules. Uh, yeah, Max rules. <laughs> Uh, but I figured, you know, there wasn't a lot of detail available then, so I figured we could just run down these details relatively quickly, even though there's a lot here, just so that folks know, you know, what the actors won in this 118-day uh, epic struggle. So I'm going to run down these bullet points relatively quickly, uh, so it's a lot of information, but uh, I figure if we comment on each point, the episode will be two hours long. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so we'll, save, we'll save the comments for the end of the list, so... Uh, first off, minimum rates for all actors will rise by 7% immediately, with background actor rates rising by 11%. Future years include additional raises of 4% and 3.5%. This initial raise of 7% is actually a slightly higher raise than workers in the WGA and the DGA one, which I believe won in, uh, immediate raises of 5%. Uh, increased compensation for this deal for all the members of SAG-AFTRA is estimated at over $1 billion. Uh, This also includes increases to all residual payments, including adding residuals for streaming of episodes in foreign markets. In support of this, streaming services are required to share streaming data on all high-budget programs with the union. These wins are similar to those won in the WGA and DGA struggles. Uh, But in addition to address the rise of streaming, the Guild pushed initially for a percentage of streaming profits. And what they ended up with was an agreement for studios to provide a, quote, success payment fund for particularly successful streaming programs. This is somewhat similar to the arrangement that the WGA won. It's a little different. Uh, Based on the formula agreed to by the bargaining team, studios are estimated to provide $40 million per year uh, during this contract to this fund. Uh, $30 million of that would be directly to the actors in those successful streaming shows, and $10 million would go into a fund for distribution to actors in other shows that are successful but not successful enough to qualify for this uh, bargain. It's it's, it's basically a compromise way to try and say... You guys have been getting away with a lot of bullshit with the streaming by hiding how which shows are successful. So you need to tell us which ones are, and we'll figure out kind of how to distribute the money. Mm. Uh, and this is uh, this was I got this that all from details from Deadline. Um, and then uh, from IndieWire, the way that they, that they were they explained it a little more, saying, "quote The top twenty percent of streaming shows and movies in the first ninety days on the service." will generate a 100% bonus based on the actor's existing residuals, which have also gone up in this contract. 75% of that money goes to the actor on the successful show, while the remaining 25% is redistributed in a fund administered by the employers and the union, end quote. Uh, they also won increased contributions for all workers' health care and pension plans. The caps on these plans had not increased in 40 years, but they do increase in this contract. There's also a new travel benefit for all workers to reimburse member costs 
for travel uh, needed in order to get reproductive or gender-affirming care due to the uh, widespread uh, outbreak of fascist laws all over the United States, restricting that form of care. Um, Actors now must also be compensated if they are required to provide their own hair or makeup or to provide translation of their own dialogue, which frankly was not something I was aware they were making the actors do, much less making them do it for free, Uh, which is wild. Yeah. Um, They also want new protections against sexual harassment on set, including requiring explicit notification to actors for any role that includes sex scenes or nudity. Okay, so we said no commentary, but I cannot believe that this was not a policy before. Yeah, me neither. (laughs) Um. Uh, let's see, they also won MLK Junior Day and uh, Juneteenth have been added as holidays for the actors for the first time. That's a little similar to like uh, what the Teamsters won in their contract at UPS. Uh, one other issue is uh, self-taped auditions. This was something that was raised by a lot of workers in the run-up to this strike. There are now requirements, th- there's no like eliminating this, but there are now requirements for self-taped auditions to make them less exploitative, to make workers, ba- to make it basically harder for studios to get free labor mm-hmm. out of workers. Uh, now uh, studios are required to provide scripts and other materials at least 48 hours in advance to those auditioning for them. Uh, there's a, a lot of the things in this deal are stuff that I'm like, I can't believe this wasn't already a requirement. Um, restrictions have also been added to uh, stop self-taped auditions from requiring an excessive amount of work or resources on the actor's part. Actors in self-taped auditions may not be required to memorize their lines. Uh, basically, they can't say you can't read off a prompter. Um, again, if you're being given something within 48 hours, I don't know how they can expect you not to use a prompter. Um, uh, the only way that they can require actors to completely memorize everything is with specific compensation. There are the, uh, no restrictions on making workers self-tape auditions rather than show up in person, nor is there direct compensation for doing so unless the actors are forced to perform without additional promoting tools. But it does create a lot of guardrails around mm-hmm. the practice of these auditions rather than the, the very exploitative uh, nature of them right now. And then probably the one that got the most press from this, uh, this deal is the protections one on AI or what's been called protections on AI, but are, are really about like digital copies mm-hmm. of actors, whether it's created with generative AI or not. Um, and these protections are, I think quite robust. Um, in the new contract, any use of a digital scan copy of an actor requires the informed consent of the actor, including background actors. And the consent has to be specific. It can't be an open-ended agreement for the, all uses of the actor's likeness forever. For instance, the contract cannot say, we will create a digital copy of you to use in the, in the movie for all movies in this franchise, for instance. So if, a, if you're an actor on a Marvel or a Star Wars film, the contract cannot say, we get to have your digital likeness for any of these movies. It has to be for an individual performance with an individual consent and individual compensation. All actors must be compensated for the use of their digital likeness, and each use of the likeness for a new project requires separate consent. If a digital copy of an actor is used with the actor's consent in a way that reduces the time the actor would be on set, the actor must still be paid their contracted rate for the time that the copy is quote, saving. This is to disincentivize studios from replacing humans with CGI copies, even with the consent of the actors. Uh, There is a carve out in this rule for the highest paid actors, those who make uh, over $80,000 for an individual role. 
Um, but it's considered less of a concern if you're making that rate. Um, I did see some discussions online that were like, oh no, we should have this for everything. But that's, uh, that's like the one exception in that, that protection. Um, additionally, beyond just a full digital copy, studios will have to gain consent for any actors whose facial features are used in the AI performer. And the studios have to inform actors if they're using AI and the union can bargain for compensation for those affected by it. Studios must also bargain with the union anytime they want to use a fully computer-generated model, what they refer to as a synthetic performer, in place of human actors. Like if you're trying to use basically a glorified Madden crowd for a crowd shot mm -hmm. in the background instead of using extras. Um, and then there are exceptions to the requirements for consent where AI or digital copies are used in some cases where previous contracts would allow the use of a double or the use of audio dubbing. So if those were allowed before, then a digital version of that will be allowed in this contract. And so that's the really long list. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. One of the ones that caught my eye particularly is the... Um, and you were just talking about it, is the one with the carve-out for the highest-paying roles, where if the studio uses a CGI model of the actor to save the actor time on set, the actor must still be paid for the time that the model saves. And I think mm -hmm. the way that that is... Not just the result of that, which is that like your wage doesn't decrease when they do that. It's also the way that that is structured is really important and is giving me Norbert Wiener writing to Walter <laughs> Ruther brain yes. because this is precisely the kind of protection that needs to be applied not just to what you would call like creative labor such as acting, but like industrial labor and labor in general, which is if there's a technological innovation that saves the employer time and money, actually, no, it doesn't. It saves the worker time and right. money <laughs> exactly exactly no 100 because this is this is again this is exactly the same sort of thing like to if you go back to our series on the ila this is where like there were voices within like the ilwu during during containerization pushing right. for stuff like this where it's just like okay it saves the company money that means that you have to cut our workload with no cut in pay mm -hmm. just exactly. seems fair <laughs> Yeah, so that that did stick out to me as is by far one of the biggest uh, wins on AI protections. And the AI provisions have generated a lot of debate. I've seen some people saying it doesn't go far enough, but I've also seen a lot of people very impressed with it. Like I saw specifically uh, entertainment industry labor lawyer and journalist Jonathan Handel said, quote, what SAG-AFTRA achieved feels close to the best possible deal on AI and may even be a model in its nuance and detail, end mm -hmm. quote. Well, and again, this is one of those things where AI is going to evolve really rapidly, like over the mm -hmm. next four years. And as I've said previously on the show, despite these contract provisions, the studios will still try fuckery. And so there's oh, going sure. to be a court of like precedent, basically, that happens during the course of this contract that is going to determine how future negotiations about this can go. And I really would encourage people to think about AI as like not at any point being a closed new technology in general, not at any point being a closed issue by something like contract provision or the law or legal precedent. This is something that is until we reach like a perfect communist, you know, state of affairs on a global scale. This is always going to be an ongoing issue and an ongoing fight. We have to keep our eye on. Well, and I think that the the mandates of negotiating with the workers and the union um, in general is really going to be important for actually like 
kind of stopping the studios from doing some of this stuff because if they are in the middle of a major production and the workers are just like i'm sorry this is a new thing we have to do a fresh negotiation on this whole bit like sure some studios are going to take the time to actually go through that process but also maybe they just won't because that's a huge pain in the ass for them and uh the things will just become more like uh the way that works out for the workers in the original form of the contract well and also like i do see the people who are praising this provision as being really extensive as being pretty much correct which is that it it functions in the way that it needs to which is to say that like there's a lot of edge cases that the studios are still going to be able to try and attempt and then the the language in this seems to give the unions room to do that horrible devilish impish thing we always hear about uh, entertainment unions doing which is saying actually technically this is a contract violation and fuck you until it's not and (laughs) i think that's great and that's super important yeah and then that last bit where it's like there are some cases where their previous contracts would allow for exceptions i think that maybe that's something that would sunset after a period of time when those contracts expire is that seem like Uh, right or no no it's it's just it's carrying on precedence it's basically like there are there are cases that have been carved out in past contracts where they're like if if you have to come in and do like post-production stuff but the actor isn't available or whatever they could use like somebody to recreate their voice Mm. and you know we can debate whether that's a good provision or not Mm -hmm. but they're just saying okay that provision already exists so if they somebody was going to if if that situation already existed and they were going to use like an analog human replacement then they could also use an AI, like a, 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 a digital replacement as well. It's not really a functionally that different right. is basically the, the argument there. And presumably that would also be, uh, you know, time saving and so would be require compensation. Yeah. And also that I think raises- it depends. It- it depends on the situation. That that mm-hmm. also raises maybe not the most important of all of these questions, but a kind of an interesting one in my mind, which is when they CGI in actors who are long dead, which is a new thing that's happening, are they going to have to pay out to that actor's estate now? Or like, what's the deal? <laughs> do they already oh, have to? Um, is it IP plus wages or do they just pay the old IP cost or what's? I don't know. Yeah. There are like provisions in there for like if you want to use AI to recreate somebody who has p- since passed, mm-hmm. you have to get consent from like the estate and you have to compensate the estate and all those things. And I believe it still does does require it's like in like each individual use, like not like you like I believe there is no way in the current provision to get that goal that the studios had mm-hmm. of like we own your likeness forever. And can just yeah, use yeah. it however. Avengers Endgame, but it's all a bunch of like fifties movie stars brought back to life right. or something. Yeah. Right, exactly. So yeah, I mean we'll and we'll see over the next few weeks as as the rank and file have a chance to vote. But you know, after 118 days on strike, it does really seem like the actors have won quite a lot in this contract. And also before we go on to our next story, I did just want to throw out a quick shout out to People's Champion Drew Carey Correct. for his incredible support of the actors during the strike. Maple may not have seen a lot about this because like he wasn't out there promoting it, but he was paying for striking workers' meals for months for the entirety of the strike and racked up a tab that, according to LA Magazine, amounted to between 600000 and $2 million million dollars that is a huge contribution to the strike how that is, is an it yeah. enormous contribution and also like po- cultural point of errata 
how is it possible that the cast of Whose Line has aged this well in public <laughs> perception? Like Colin Mockery, Ryan Stiles, Wayne Brady. These are all guys whose like shine has not faded at all somehow miraculously. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So that I just, you know, I just wanted to shout Isn't that it? out. <laughs> because comedy usually sucks. Comedians, especially <laughs> men comedians, typically are in the dustbin of history pretty quick. So just, <laughs> I'm just noting this. <laughs> but yeah, I just wanted to shout that out because I thought that was extremely cool uh, uh, of Drew Carey yes. to do that. And again, with very little, like, no self promotion whatsoever. <laughs> just like, yeah, this is the right thing to do. Yeah. Which hell rules. yeah. We love we love that Midwest and, uh, excellence. I mean, <laughs> yeah, and as I referred to earlier, we do have to talk about Starbucks though, because it's been two years since the first Starbucks standalone location in the U.S. first unionized in Buffalo, and it's been a long drag out fight ever since. Over 360 stores in 41 states across the country have unionized, but Starbucks has dug in its heels and made itself the face of modern union busting by refusing to bargain with thousands of of its workers. And so this week, Starbucks Workers United launched their largest strike yet, the Red Cup Rebellion number two. Uh, with the union the, strikes back. That's right. That's right. With thousands <laughs> of workers across the country walking out on the company's biggest promotional day of the year. So on Thursday, November 16th, uh, on the annual Red Cup Day, a promotion day where customers get a free cup and are encouraged to buy more holiday drinks with them. And it, it's actually really a nightmare day. It's mm-hmm. like... If it's basically the single busiest day of the year for the workers. And so over the last two years, Starbucks Workers United has turned this day on its head, striking instead at the over 200 stores across the country and bringing attention to the company's nationwide campaign of lawbreaking and union busting. And the union estimates that over 5,000 workers took part in this strike, which is really, really awesome. It's a big increase too like we've seen steady over the mm-hmm. last because i feel like some people have been like maybe here maybe just because we've like we've covered it less it's been less in the news but like the the stars Workers united movement continues to grow at a really rapid pace and it's been super cool to see oh yeah just because it's not the kind of like big bang cosmological explosion we saw at the very start <laughs> people lost a little bit of interest but their membership growth has actually been fairly like well sustained and kind of staggering over the last uh, mm-hmm. couple of years here yeah and i mean to talk more about the red cup day i mean it really is like an awful day to be a worker there because customer there are so many extra customers and many stores increase their revenues by up to 50 percent at some locations and very often there is not an increase to staffing if mm-hmm. maybe like the, the the store manager will come in and work the line and uh, for Cause a little problems. bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, when I, when I was there, I was not even informed that it was going to be a day. I came in Ugh. and they were just like, Hey, guess what? Today's a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, like, <laughs> let's not undersell the fact that promotions and sales also make customers worse. Customers are usually on their mm-hmm. absolute worst behavior when they've come to a store specifically for an event or a sale or something. Oh, absolutely. Right. Well, and to your point, Lena, you know, there was a, we had a quote here from Casper Borowitz, a, a worker on the University of Pittsburgh campus who told CBS News, quote, 
At my store, we're the fourth busiest store on the East Coast, and we saw upwards of 500 drinks an hour with six people on the floor. That's simply not realistic. You, you can't make 500 drinks an hour with six people on the bar, much less in the flo- on the floor. You need a dozen people minimum to take care of that kind of traffic. Yeah, but and then honestly, I've when I, it, I it's so frustrating because now I'm just remembering all the times we're like, uh, no, we're checking the numbers, we're looking at the computer, and it says here that our numbers say that you could have done it. Yeah, <laughs> we ran an algorithm that told us actually you're lazy, so get back to work. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so fucking frustrating. It's giving me uh, flashbacks. Yeah. So, so to back to the story, uh, Mo Mills, a Starbucks worker at St. Louis, uh, told the ABC News, quote, It's degrading and embarrassing to work in stores that are so short-staffed on promotional days that we give customers poor service, end quote. And I mean, their store has been unionized for over a year, but the company has only participated in one bargaining session, and they left after 15 minutes, yeah. which and- is not at all surprising for Starbucks. No. And I really want to underscore what Mo said in that statement, because when the store does set you up to fucking fail on one of the busiest days of the year and you are run ragged and you're exhausted and you don't have the resources you need, and you're not being paid enough to be there and you end up dropping drinks and making shit wrong and customers yell at you. You don't just walk out of there feeling exhausted from your day. You walk out of there feeling fucking degraded and miserable mm-hmm. because like literally dozens of people have just been pissed off at you for hours and hours and hours on end and then you had to stay after to clean up the fucking messes yeah and this is the kind of day where the whipped cream cans explode yes all over your fucking apron and your face and your glasses (laughs) and it's a nightmare yeah and i mean just to be clear i mean starbucks has been hit with hundreds of unfair labor practice charges and nearly all of those have gone to court and been upheld and the judges across the country have called out the company for unleashing this reign of terror on workers but because of our labor laws and how absolutely toothless they are starbucks has faced basically no substantial penalties from the state for breaking basically every labor law in the book and has Mm -hmm. put the onus on the workers themselves to do things like these strikes literally you name the labor law starbucks has figured out a way to violate it yeah yeah although you know i don't we don't want to say that to be like disheartening to people because despite that despite this Mm -hmm. unprecedented and just ridiculous campaign of union busting across the country it hasn't stopped the union from organizing stores like uh, even just in the last year alone uh, while again not reaching the giant explosion at the end of 2021 beginning of 2022 as i try to remember how time works (laughs) (laughs) but just in the last year they have added a hundred new stores to the union drive. So again, there is no shortage whatsoever of workers uh, being interested in joining the movement, including, I will just shout out the workers at One Financial Plaza in downtown Providence, who just uh, joined as uh, the currently only store in the union drive here in Rhode Island. Uh, Huge shout outs to them. Uh, We definitely support you. Hell yeah. Um, But also, I just wanted to say, you know, before we go to our last story, like there's one other front that's been really interesting that uh, Starbucks has opened over the last year in its fight against the union busting campaign, which is on college campuses. Because, you know, earlier this year, we talked about the victory of a student led campaign to remove Starbucks from Cornell after the company closed all its standalone locations in the college town of Ithaca in retaliation for them unionizing. 
And since that victory on Cornell's campus, that tactic has begun to spread. Workers at Georgetown University recently launched their own campaign to demand the university pull Starbucks license to operate on campus and for the the university to divest from company stock until the corporation stops union busting. And a recent organizing meeting to discuss the campaign drew attendees from over 70 colleges across the country, as reported by business news site Fast Company. And so, you know, Organizers have also used this nationwide strike in addition to organizing on college campuses, in addition to showing at all the hundreds of stores that have unionized. They used it as an opportunity to visit with workers at non-union stores to discuss their rights in the workplace as well and to encourage community supporters to show up in person so that workers know that their neighbors have their back. And some of those non-union stores are already fighting back even without a union because a lot of them in New York City recently filed charges against the company for violating the city's uh, Fair Work Week law, which requires companies to give fast food workers their schedules at least two weeks in advance. As usual, Starbucks denies breaking the law, but, I mean, a denial from Starbucks might as well be a confession at this point. They have lied about every single one of the labor charges that they have been proven in court to have committed So there's really no reason to listen to their denials on any of this. This is something they are clearly doing and just want to shout out those workers at those stores in New York City for, you know, doing everything they can to try and use what few labor protections we have to hold the company accountable. Yeah, I I just cannot stress enough like so and i and i've said this before but i went through a union busting campaign in a retail setting and that was a nightmare and working at starbucks was worse for my mental health Mm -hmm. like that that is that is absolutely the kind of situation that starbucks puts people in and there was not even a union campaign necessarily at my store at the time so i mean just just to put it in perspective starbucks workers are hard-working people and deserve everything that they're fighting fighting for hell yeah and so as always shout outs to starbucks workers united some of the coolest folks out there uh if you've got a union store near you show your support if you got a non-union store near you still show your support to the workers there because they like lena said they're probably working in some really fucking awful conditions so mm-hmm. but uh for our last story this week you know we always want to end on a bit of a high note but we've we've seen so many unions pop up at universities over the last couple of years. Like ever since we interviewed grad student workers at Columbia about their union a couple of years ago, it feels like there's a new giant announcement like every week. And this week's major entry is at NYU, where about 4,000 researchers just submitted over 2,700 cards to the NLRB uh, with their intent to form a union with the UAW. So researchers at NYU have been organizing for several months and their efforts have had rapid impact. In August, NYU announced a major salary increase for postdocs at NYU, Langone Health, of 15% to $70,000 a year, and a 10% increase for grad assistants to $51,000 a year, uh, which uh, would be decent salaries in many parts of the country. In New York City, still pretty low. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But what this does show, I mean, a, a 10% increase, 15% increase for postdocs, it shows the university clearly understands that it's been underpaying these workers for a really long time and is throwing out these raises at the last minute in desperation to avoid a union. And in response to all the raises, Ruby Steedle, a researcher involved in the organizing effort, told the school's student paper, the Washington Square Times, quote, without a union and a contract, researchers have no guarantee of their working conditions or even their job stability. 
We need the power of all researchers together to force NYU to recognize our value to the university, end quote. Yeah, and I mean, many workers in the proposed bargaining unit have also decried the ways that postdoc graduate assistants and researchers at NYU have had their compensation and benefits changed abruptly depending on what which positions the school chooses to decide are official or not. And Laura Lee, a postdoc at the school, said that during her fellowship, the school decided that she was no longer an employee at NYU. And she also told the Washington Square Times, quote, I lost almost all of my employee benefits, including access to a retirement account and vision insurance. It honestly feels like a scam that I had to take a pay cut and lose my benefits to advance my career. The university shouldn't be allowed to do that, end quote. Yeah, and this this is one of those things that I think needs to be so incredibly enraging, like about a lot of these fights. And we saw this a lot, like with the adjunct professors at the new school, and just generally with so many grad student workers in general. We have this incredibly patronizing attitude from the university administration where they're like, oh, well, no, look, we value your contribution as a scholar, but you're not an employee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's- It's like, motherfucker, are you profiting from my labor? Then yes. Yes, I am an employee, and you have to follow fucking employment law. (laughs) Yeah. And, I mean, like, on the website, the union states, quote, researchers make essential contributions to the world-class research conducted at NYU, but many of us still struggle with high housing and other costs in New York City. We lack secure rights in the workplace and face increasing uncertainty about our futures given the precarious nature of science funding and unstable regulation of visas and work authorization, end quote. And so, I mean, after workers signed the two-thirds majority of cards, they asked the school to voluntarily recognize the union, which NYU declined. They claimed that workers that are proposed in, in the proposed bargaining unit are not a, quote, singularly defined classification, end quote, which is the same thing. Uh, that we've seen very recently from mm-hmm. other universities who have tried to say, oh, no, some of you are workers and some of you aren't. You have to break up this unit. Uh, please do not have unity. Yeah. Well, and then they, they said that, you know, oh, the term researcher is, quote, vague. <laughs> and that some researchers don't count as workers. Which, like, what? no, yes, they do. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, what are you talking? They're doing work for you and you're profiting from it. Yes, they're workers. You don't just get to arbitrarily say, okay, you count as a member of the proletariat, but you don't because I don't want to pay you. Here, I can, ide- <laughs> I can define these terms for you real easily. A researcher is someone who does research, research is work. <laughs> yes. Therefore, by the transitive property, a researcher is a worker. It's very Damn. simple. <laughs> Advanced <laughs> philosophy on this show, folks. <laughs> Or next week for Kierkegaard, but um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's a ludicrous position, and so uh, yeah, we heard from uh, Ramin Rani, a biology postdoc, who told the Washington Square News, "quote None of these claims are true. A strong majority of researchers, nearly twenty seven hundred people, have signed authorization cards supporting the formation of our union. The idea that the research we do is somehow not work." is laughable and insulting, end quote. Which is exactly what we just, you know, we were just laughing yeah. because it was so insulting. I literally yeah, just gave no. a proof for why it's insulting. A hundred percent right <laughs> and totally with you, Ramin. Uh, absolutely correct. So, but the thing is, 
That's the great thing about uh, rallying so many of your fellow workers together is that despite the fact that NYU refused to voluntarily recognize the union, they already have a supermajority of people who sign cards. So uh, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, now that the workers have filed with the NLRB, there will be a hearing held to determine the validity of their proposed bargaining unit, which I would expect NYU will probably contest just to drag things out like a bunch of assholes. But again, 2,700 cards out of 4,000 workers, like uh, it, it seems like there's pretty overwhelming support here mm-hmm. for the union. Uh, so I think at this point, their victory seems less like a matter of if than a matter of when. And we really look forward to that day, hopefully not too long from now, when we get to come back and talk about the NYU researchers and their victory in their union election to join the UAW. With over 90% approval. Absolutely. (laughs) Because that's consistently what has been happening in these situations. While they probably, you know, won't get every single person to vote, the people who do vote will vote for the union. I'm just going to call it now. Yeah. So... (laughs) So as always, solidarity with the NYU workers. We really look forward to you winning your union. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, let's just move right into, as we are in the late stages of this episode, where every single episode leads us the meme review. That's right. It's meme time, folks. Yeah. And this one, we've got a headline of Rolling Stone magazine where it says, uh, GOP senator says he could have beat up hearing witness if not for, quote, political correctness. (laughs) Mark Wayne Mullen told Sean Hannity that Oklahoma's Oklahomans would have been upset with him if he hadn't tried to fistfight Teamsters president Sean O'Brien. And so then there's, funny. there's a little photo of like the guy crying in the background <laughs> and the text on this says, bro, I really wanted to beat him up, but political correctness, bro, please just believe me, bro. The communist Democrats woke mind virus, bro. You can't beat up anyone representing the working poor on the, on the floor of the Senate anymore. <laughs> It's it's funny to me for so many reasons this because like first O'Brien would have ethered this guy instantaneously. Second, political correctness didn't stop you Mark Wayne Mullen guy with two first names in his first name. <laughs> Bernie Sanders, the 80-year-old man from Vermont who a light breeze could blow over, stopped you. <laughs> Let's be clear about what happened. An elderly man convinced you not to fight. <laughs> yeah, I mean this is just I saw a bunch of people being like, oh, Mark Wayne Mullen used to be an MMA competitor. I'm like, I don't care. Sean O'Brien is the president of the Teamsters, and he's not just that. He is a Teamster from Boston. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah, he no. would have ejected Mark Wayne Mullen into the sun. It, it, there's a big <laughs> difference between a guy who like knows how to hit the speed bag the exact right way all the time and a guy who's been in a fight. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. But And the whole thing, though, is just so it's, – it's the biggest – Stupid clownish bullshit posturing from this guy. Because again, this is the only time we ever hear about this idiot is is mm-hmm. in his clashes with Sean O'Brien, where he can't just come out there and you know roll out the same standard Republican talking points. Oh, unions are strict competition, and I'm se- I'm self made, which he always throws out there, which is not true because mm-hmm. he inherited his parents' plumbing business. Uh, but you know he has to come out there and do this like. To hold me back, bro. I, I was gonna beat him up, but but you know, it was it's all the political correctness. Like, shut the fuck up. Like it's so it's embarrassing. You're lucky, <laughs> you're lucky the elderly independent senator from Vermont is yeah. here. Or I swear to God I'd kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> It's so dumb. Also, anytime but- like a capitalist says they're self made, it's like, oh, so you had no employees? 
<laughs> well, right. It is, yeah, it's all bullshit. But like, <laughs> this next one is. I think this is from Tumblr actually, yeah. but. This is, this is a joke actually from last year, but it, I, I thought I liked it in in, uh, in in view of the fact that we had Red Cup Rebellion this week. I thought it was appropriate where this is just a two part exchange on Tumblr where the first person uh, ball wizard <laughs> is like, why do coffee makers growl at you? What's the point of all that? And then this person tragedy posting responds. They're called baristas and they're working very hard. <laughs> they deserve to let off steam however they'd like. <laughs> It's true. It's true. I mean, just like sometimes a customer needs to be told, uh, no, you're, it's going to be a couple minutes. You could just go sit down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, this is the position of our show. The customer is always wrong. That's right. I hate being a customer. <laughs> hate doing that to someone. <laughs> Speaking of somebody who's always wrong. Oh, yes. <laughs> This is a classic. We have the the Yanmi Park on Joe Rogan uh, format here where she's talking into the microphone and Bulwark at Matt Oban has just tweeted, in America, they make you vote for 100% Hitler or 99% Hitler. And if you don't vote for either of them, you actually elect double Hitler. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like, up until that last part, I thought this was true. (laughs) (laughs) This has been the level of liberal discourse in the last couple of weeks, though, as they've recognized that an entire generation of people is not going to vote for fucking genocide, Joe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it is. And I'm not really on Twitter, but as it kind of seeps into the discord, I thought that this was a very funny, like, series of, of, like, bullshit discourses of, like, what about 99% Hitler? What is it? There's that one other meme where it's the Biden-Harris sign. It says, only 99% Hitler. It's just like- <laughs> Yeah. Well, it, because it's like, there's all these people out here trying to concern troll people and be like, oh, well, yeah, he's doing a genocide, but Trump would do a double genocide. And I'm like, no, it, no one, I, no one cares about your hypotheticals right now. I'm like, this is actually going on. And so all you're doing is telling us how bizarrely excited many liberals are to vote for some percentage reduction of Hitler. Mm-hmm. Like, which is, I'm like, not sure the point I think you want to be making to advocate for your position. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, actually, I don't want to do this one because my, my job is <laughs> so, different than, than what you guys are experiencing. I feel like this is more of a meme for you two. Uh, this is my job up and down. Uh, just instead of a paint bucket, it's a, it's a box of fucking Fritos. <laughs> this, this has a guy on his phone with like a bucket of like cement or something on his yeah. shoulder. Yeah, gravel, yeah it's maybe. on a construction site. And uh, it just says them. All you do is post memes. Don't you have a job? Me at work holding my phone while balancing... <laughs> industrial uh, uh supplies on my fucking shoulder <laughs> well and i isn't he i mean it's really it's a low res image but i think he's is he also carrying that second bucket so he's like posting with one hand oh my god he's got a bucket of cement in his other hand and has a bother bucket on his shoulder this You're man right. is triple tasking and you know the meme is fire too and this is the thing people really underestimate the working class but they don't understand that this is how people post i post my best (laughs) at my worst jobs wait until i get a really good job you'll never see me on the internet again (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Oh, man. And then, uh, as we have been doing on occasion, SEIU 925 has really been do- putting out some really good memes these days. Uh, mm-hmm. This one with a, a a photo of the Ninja Turtle Michelangelo and then a, f- a faded photo in the background of them all, of all the Ninja Turtles eating pizza. And uh, the text on this one in purple, classic SEIU, says, Michelangelo finding out that people now associate pizza with anti-union management <laughs> pizza parties. And Michelangelo is like, aghast <laughs> no no look look we we hate the anti-union management pizza parties but if you and the boys are just ordering a pizza after karate class that is totally cool man <laughs> <laughs> well and that's what another reason why we have to defeat capitalism so that we can once again restore the cultural status of pizza to where it belongs that's right, that's right. yeah hell yeah <laughs> All right, and that is where we're going to leave it for today. We want to thank everyone who supports the show. If you'd like to support us, uh, I mean, we're entirely listener-supported, so we really appreciate that. You can do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. You can also follow us in all of the places. The links are at workstoppagepod.com. Write us a review somewhere. It really helps people find the show. You can jump in the Discord where, uh, I mean... If you want to stay up on like the news of like what's going on in Palestine and as well as all of the other worker stories, there is a ton of stuff that goes on in there. So jump in the Discord to stay up on the news. Make sure to uh, listen to BB Lettuce, listen to Red Game Table, and as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. Laggiù nel Medio Oriente come un bufalo ferito, in furia il pirata americano. Ma nei campi sulle dune sono armati anche i bambini, ogni donna in furia il suo fucile. No, non fan paura i carri armati di Israele, la tua terra tu la devi liberare. Abbiamo alzato il rosso, il verde, il bianco e il nero, stretta in pugno la bandiera, i colori di Alfata. Abbiamo alzato la bandiera partigiana della rossa palestina, accanto a quella del Vietnam. Li chiamano banditi i giornali dei padroni, che chiamavano assassini partigiani. Noi non crederemo ai bollettini israeliani, al tiranno Giordano traditore. Quante volte ci hanno detto è finita in Palestina e ancora cantavamo la canzone. Abbiamo alzato il rosso, il verde, il bianco e il nero, stretta in pugno la bandiera, i colori di Alpata. Abbiamo alzato la bandiera partigiana della rossa palestina accanto a quella del Vietnam. Al di là di questo mare c'è un popolo fratello, ogni lotta aiuta un'altra lotta. Ogni colpo sparato sul nemico sionista, in Italia colpisce chi comanda. Coi popoli in rivolta si muove oggi la storia. Rivoluzione fino alla vittoria Abbiamo alzato il rosso, il verde, il bianco e il nero Stretta in pugno la bandiera, i colori di Alfata Abbiamo alzato la bandiera partigiana della rossa palestina Accanto a quella del Vietnam like he's self-made.
Sir, I wish you was in the truck with me when I was building my plumbing company myself and my wife was running the office because I sure remember working pretty hard and long hours. Pretends like he's self-made. What a clown. Fraud. Always has been. Always will be. Quit the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me. Any place, any time, cowboy. Sir, this is a time, this is a place. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, hold, stop it. Is that your Sorry. solution every poll? Oh, no, no, sit down. Sit down. Okay. You know, okay. you're a United States senator. Sit down. Active. Oh, okay. okay. Sit down, please. All right. Can I respond? Mr. Hold Chair. it. Hold it. If Hold we can't, no, I have the mic. Said. I'm sorry. This is Hold what it. he said. You'll have your time. Okay. Can I respond? Oh, no, you can't. <laughs> this is a hearing. 